This is a valid podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about a tough problem. And trigger warning, it contains general information about sexual assault by and against people with intellectual disabilities. Now, while people with intellectual disabilities are seven times more likely to be sexually assaulted as the general population, at times they commit sexual crimes as well. So we're talking with a passionate and experienced Pittsburgh social worker who's helping people learn how to avoid committing sexual crimes, how to avoid being victimized themselves, and how to thrive in their relationships. It's a job few others are doing. This season of A Valid Podcast, we're looking at how to support people with intellectual disabilities to live with greater safety and inclusion in the community. Obviously, when people commit crimes or are victimized, it's a strike against social inclusion. The most significant factor for someone with an intellectual disability to commit a sexual crime is if they themselves were previously abused. In 2021, the Justice Department found that nearly a quarter of all prisoners, not just those committing sex offenses, may have intellectual, cognitive, or learning disabilities. This figure represents the number of prisoners who said they took special education classes. Disability advocate Dara Thompson interviewed Sean McGill for a valid podcast. Hello, my name is Sean McGill. I am the founder and CEO of Sean McGill Consulting. We support people with autism spectrum disorders and intellectual disabilities. We focus on behavior supports where we're working in people's homes or communities. I also specialize in outpatient services. I do a lot of training and consulting. How long has um, your company been in operation? I opened the company 10 years ago, so we just celebrated our 10th anniversary in August, Yay! which was exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's a big deal. Um, can you give me some specifics about some of the people you support? Sadly, a majority of the referrals that we get uh, involve people who've been caught up in the criminal justice system. So there's a forensic element uh, that we specialize in, um, which is actually very sad, I think. Yeah. You know, I've worked in this field for over two decades. And one of the reasons why I started my own company was to try to mitigate so many people getting caught up in institutional settings and being able to live more freely, happily, and independently in the community. That is so needed. <laughs> we have a long way to go. I would agree. <laughs> I would agree. Um, what are some red flags um, you tell folks to look out for um, within the system? What I mean, we, we have so many issues still just looking at the criminal justice system, period. Yes. Um, when you're looking at sexual offenses in particular, um, there isn't a great deal of flexibility within that system. So, for example, if you have a 19-year-old who had a 17-year-old girlfriend and they were intimate with each other but there was a breakup and someone has a, a bone to grind, that person can then end up on Megan's Law and be a lifetime registered offender uh, for situations like that. Now, that's one example. Mm -hmm. My point is... We can't look at all these offenses as being exactly the same either. And then there are mitigating circumstances. You know, um, I'm involved in a situation where it seems like police are targeting this young man. Mm. He's black. He's autistic. He's different. He's quote unquote weird, right? But he is constantly, constantly going up against the police in the community. 
I think because he's just different on so many levels. Yeah. What can folks that are being targeted by the police, the system, what are some strategies that they can use um, to try to lessen that situation? Well, we do have some good resources in this area. Um, We have justice-related services, which is a component of the court system. Mm -hmm. So if there's mental health diagnoses or other mitigating circumstances, they can get involved uh, to help uh, with the situation. I've contacted the, um, the Civilian Review Board for Police Interactions and have described this situation. So sadly, we're seeing... You know, our folks, when I say our folks, people with disabilities Mm -hmm. getting sucked into the same problems that we're seeing being amplified on the news. Mm -hmm. I mean, these issues have always existed, but now they're crossing over into subcategories of people that historically may not have been so subject to these interactions. What can society as a whole do? I think people need to understand more about autism and about differences in general. You know, education is powerful. Yes. Just because someone doesn't look just like you or act just like you doesn't mean that they're scary or dangerous. I think we need a lot more police training also. Uh, I know Autism Connection of PA did a lot of work with the city police on educating them about what a person with autism can look like, especially if they're becoming emotionally charged so that the first response isn't to become aggressive because the more aggressive you are in your tone and approach, the more that situation is going to escalate also. You know, we've seen in the news uh, the proposal of mental health workers working alongside the police force also. Mm -hmm. You know, so even not just people on the spectrum or with disabilities, I think the, the general population as a whole, a lot of these situations could be worked through without the first approach being aggression. And when I say aggression, I'm not talking just shooting someone. Yeah. Right? That's the the most aggressive act there is. But your tone, Mm -hmm. your body language, your approach speaks in volumes in terms of how you're going to resolve that situation. So are there other people like you in Pittsburgh or um, in other areas or in other parts of the country that are doing the same work that you're doing? There are lots of people who work with individuals with autism and intellectual disabilities. I think the niche that I carved out, uh, and it was because of my training experience where I worked before, was specifically addressing components related to sexuality. That was the big thing that, you know, when I started over 20 years ago, no one wanted to talk about it. Hmm. And it's still not readily talked about. I would agree. So that's why we're often working backwards. Uh, Meaning, there's a saying, don't fly the plane as you're building it, right? Mm -hmm. So usually, sadly, someone from the court system calls me or a parent calls me frantically saying, my son or daughter is involved in this situation. They were sexually abused or they're sitting in the county jail. Can you help? So that's what we get to the point where something terrible has happened and then we're trying to create solutions for that problem. So I saw on your website that you have groups um, twice a month um, related to relationships, sexuality, dating. Can you share a little bit bit about those groups? The the groups, we do two things. One, we try to work with people on understanding emotions and just dealing with everyday stressors too. 
problem solving. It's really important to help people learn how to problem solve in a good way and become less reactive. The general population could probably <laughs> learn something from that, right? I We're living in a very aggressive, reactive, impulsive world, and it, it's getting worse. So we have that component. But then we also really drill down on uh, information related to sexuality in general. Um, that can be healthy sexuality. You know, schools have curriculums where they're teaching the general educational system about sexuality you know what is it you're 13 14 they separate the boys and girls and they're teaching them about this Mm -hmm. stuff well a lot of the people that we support never had that so we're teaching them about things like safe sex practices consent um, that sort of thing what's legal and what's illegal in terms of sex and the law so we're teaching that information but we're also exploring other things like gender identity Um, Research has just started to evolve in the last two years related to people on the spectrum identifying uh, as as possibly having some differences in terms of their gender identity. So that's been something that's that's up and coming also. Uh, We also know that people with disabilities are about 90% likely to have been sexually assaulted or abused at some point in their life. It can be any disability. And to me, that's not okay. No, that's a terrible statistic. It's absolutely daunting. So we work a lot with abuse prevention and safety as well so that people know uh, what is okay, what is not okay, how to protect themselves, how to stop and report incidents as well. So that's the number one risk factor associated with the potential for sexual offending for people with disabilities. That's number one. And the neurotypical population Using drugs and alcohol and being intoxicated is the number one risk factor. So you learn based upon what's been done to you. Yeah. But I was seeing even, you know, a lot of the sex offender programs here in Pittsburgh, Mercy has one. Uh, There was something on the news several years ago about even neurotypical offenders and the statistics of them having been abused also. That needs to be treated also. Yes. Yeah. We have you to can't treat recover. trauma. Exactly. You can't recover unless you, you treat the components that need to be treated. Yeah. Oh, the work that you're doing is amazing. <laughs> like, it's, it's like you're just sitting in a, a chair with a fire extinguisher and just spinning around hoping to put out fires. Yeah. I want that to stop. I want other people to get on board with all of these things, you know, abuse prevention and safety right? Sexual abuse, gender identity, healthy sexuality. There's so many components that we need to really focus on and make sure we're putting forth our best efforts. Yeah. We need system-wide change. System-wide change. I'm not okay with providers being okay or being allowed to investigate incidents, their own incidents too. Oh, yeah. That's not... Seems like a conflict of interest, right? Very much so. Yes. Very much so. So that's an example of a system change I feel really needs to be carefully looked at and changed sooner rather than later. What could um, society in general do? What could Pittsburghers do to help facilitate this system-wide change? Um, Is it writing letters to insurance companies and providers? Is it um, just having conversations I think people just need more information about, you know, that statistic, 90%. 
49% of those 90% have been abused sexually 10 times or more. I mean, that's that's someone's son, that's someone's yeah. daughter, that's someone's sister or brother. It's not okay. That's a human life. Yeah. You know, so so really understanding the information and what that means to a person and their families and our community. These are contributing members of society. It's painful. It, it, it becomes a painful thing for me to to think about and then to work with. Yeah. But it also can be a very beautiful thing to actually see a person recover. Yeah. You don't forget it. You don't get over it, right? But you can learn to not let it control every aspect of your life forever. And that's an important message to let people know that recovery is real. It is possible. Absolutely. Whether that's from abuse and trauma or it, that's even the sexual offending aspect, too. We all make mistakes. But that doesn't mean that we have to pay the consequence for the rest of our lives either. You know, the one that, that jumps into my head is, you know, he's, he was released from prison just this year. And he, he, he really didn't have a lot of information about um, consent. You know, people, we assume that they know information because they present in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But even just the age of consent, for example, well, that is 18, right? Yeah. If you're already an adult. Mm -hmm. So he didn't know that. And I have to believe that he didn't know that. And he befriended this person on social media. Uh, you know, dang social media, yeah. that can be such a problem too, right? Yes. Uh, and he started talking with this young woman. She said that she was 18. And then they, you know, talked for months and months and months, and they met up, and they wound up being intimate. She was 16 years old. Mm. And he's a lifetime Megan's Law offender. You know, and I think historically, the community has viewed people with disabilities as not being able to learn things. And that is so untrue. Yeah. We just have to teach information in a way that they understand it, that they can process it and learn from it and use it. So, you know, we went through a lot of that. He understood. I mean, he was very clear. He knew why he was in trouble. But just, you know, the, the sentence, the life sentence that he carries, that he can't go to play, like Halloween, he wasn't allowed to put up Halloween decorations because he's still on probation. Well, he has a very childlike enthusiasm about him, too. He understands it, right? Yeah. And he was so depressed when I first met him. Just, I, I can't do anything. I'm never going to become anything. You know, we had to start to really work on his self-esteem also. He's a very likable person. He has a lot of wonderful skills. You know, and I think that's the, the part of recovery that I had to tap into for him. Every person is different. But that motivation to help him see that he is a somebody, mm -hmm. despite what happened, Right. Yeah. And he can continue to be a somebody, you know, and so he's he's working now. He's working a full time job. He didn't get Social Security. So he's he's actually his head is being held up a little bit higher. And to me, when we recovery is such a big word, you know, being in the system, the criminal justice system tore him down. He had to be in solitary confinement because of, you know, the acts that were happening against him. Oh. Can you imagine? No. That's absolutely terrible. He was torn down. 
So when we hear the word recovery, you know, one of I, I was trained by a gentleman years ago, and he said, Sean, when you're in the business of treating offenders, you're in the business of motivation. And that's helping people to see that they can be a somebody, but helping them become a somebody. That is a wonderful statement. I never <laughs> forgot it. I never forgot it. Say it again. <laughs> Let people know again. Say it again, please. <laughs> We're in the business of motivation, right? Social yeah. services, you're in the business of motivation. Help them see that they are somebody and help them become a somebody. That is a powerful statement. And that is, that is what social services should be about. It's not about the money. If you think <laughs> it's about the money, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. But we also have to, when you're in social services, looking at those barriers that exist in the system, we have to amplify the discrepancies, and we have to challenge those barriers, or we're not going to get anywhere. What sort of work do you do with parents and families? Uh, it, it you know runs the gamut from a lot of parents may have heard me talk about uh, autism and sexuality, Specifically, and I think the one thing that resonates with parents is the statistics on abuse and their concern. And you watch the news and you hear it. You know, yeah. a school bus driver, a van driver, sexually touches four kids or something. Yeah. Special needs. They're they're more subject to that also. So they they hit the panic button. And how can I teach my son or daughter to protect themselves when they can't even tell me what they had for lunch? You know, or something because communication can be limited. Yeah. So a lot of times we're we're starting, and I'm not a speech pathologist, but helping to look at how can we teach a person not just the information, but to actually communicate something back. So I'm standing sometimes and just teaching people to scream at me, or to say the word no to me, because if someone is going after you and they're trying to hurt you, the best thing you can do is make a lot of noise. Yeah. Right. We teach compliance to people with disabilities. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, yes. Which is the worst thing that you can teach. We want people to make noise. So it's interesting to actually have someone like stand and scream, and at first they're real soft, right? Because it's talk compliance. And I'm going louder and louder and louder. So it's, it's taking apart those components in one step at a time, trying to teach the person how to do this stuff. Um, have you ever had any parents with pushback um, with, oh, I don't think we should talk about sexuality? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, how, do you, how do you get around that? Well, that's where we have to tread lightly in talking about uh, religion, morals, and values. Um, you know, because I, I don't want to go against the grain of what people believe in. What you believe yeah. is what you believe. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we have to have respectful, very raw conversations about the fact that we need to be able to discuss this and actually, you know, the connection that you make with the parent is important too. So oh, saying yeah. something, for example, I would rather be able to talk to your son about masturbation, right, even though your religion may go against that, uh, than talk to your son about the potential of him going to prison, you know, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes that's a real eye-opening uh, conversation to have, you know, and, and some parents have that aha moment, right? Mm -hmm. I want to respect your religions. 
I want to respect your morals and your values. I don't want something bad to happen to your son or daughter, which is why you came to me in the first place. That's awesome. It goes <laughs> back to one size doesn't fit all. One size doesn't fit all. <laughs> um, so you offer some supports for people in the LGBTQ plus on the spectrum. Can you talk about that and how you've adapted the information to create a safer community? Yes, that's definitely, that's the one area I think that's growing um, mm -hmm. significantly in recent years, the last one to two years. Um, you know, I think people are growing more comfortable with the transgender community. I'm transgender, recently just came out after almost 45 years. Ooh, I know, you. it's amazing, right? <laughs> but, but there's this fear that resonates, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what people of color try to talk about, whether you're Asian or you're African American. Something that stands out can mean sometimes a situation of life or death. Yes. So it's not always a safe place, but I think the young generation is making it a safer place. Younger people are way more open-minded, Yeah. way more accepting. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing now people with autism spectrum disorders and some with intellectual disabilities, we all have gender identity, we all have sexual identity, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing more people coming in and saying, I think I'm non-binary, I think I'm transgender, or any one of the gender identity spectrums. I mean, that's a spectrum also. You know, and it's been, it's tough as a person who's transgender to make the medical transition. You know, the World Professional Organization of Transgender Health has specific standards of care that have to be met in order for uh, surgeries and to actually proceed with medical transition. And that becomes a slippery slope sometimes in working with people who have neurological disorders. Mm -hmm. It's not well understood. I mean, for years, I remember working with victims who were uh, raped or sexually assaulted, and organizations would say, we can't work with this person. We don't work with people with intellectual disabilities or autism. So where do they go? Yeah. We're seeing that now for people who identify as being different with their gender identity. We don't work with these people. Um, where do they go? So I had to learn about it, right? I had to learn, you know, the the irony as I identified as, but learning about those standards of care, but learning how to evaluate whether or not a person really has gender dysphoria in order to make medical transition while following those standards of care has been absolutely paramount. And then working with other mental health and medical providers to see that the person gets what they need. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know minorities have a hard time accessing health care services. Yes. We know that, mm -hmm. right? And so you throw on top of it, you're transgender, you're disabled, and or you're of color. You've got numerous strikes against you. So we have to push and we have to push and we have to push to see things forward. During COVID, how were your interactions with your patients? Did you do video? Do you still offer video? Or was it in person, but just socially distanced? We moved primarily to telehealth um, for, for a very long time. Um, telehealth is not an effective modality of treatment uh, for people with dis disabilities. Um, so 
I was very eager to get back to meet in person with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've offered, what are you comfortable with? You know, because it's really about, again, it's about that choice and it's yeah. about what a person is or is not comfortable with. So I, I would say I'm, I'm doing maybe 10% telehealth and the rest is all in person again. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Are your um, monthly groups in person? No, those no. are telehealth and I think we're going to okay. maintain telehealth simply because we've been able to access so many people it's it's really it's boomed so bringing people from everywhere together i mean even internationally we can bring people you know into the groups and have them interact it's working so you know when i see something working don't try to fix it because it's not broken yeah that that's awesome that was going to be my next question is who can access your group but even international folks anyone can access our groups yes now we would like to see you know once things get a little more under control with the pandemic because i'm not real confident with that at this point but bringing groups of people together to do social things then too and to actually use the skills that we've been learning uh, hands-on you know whether it's get let's get together and do a night at dave and busters or something like that you know using some of those social skills that's great Hopefully we can get through this pandemic. I sure hope so. Soon. <laughs> it's um it's exhausting. It is. It and is. And frustrating. Yes. And for a lot of people it's hurting them because Absolutely. of um people that already had limited access to care. Yes. That access is it's even harder to get now. Yeah. Well, and just even limited access to their communities. Yes. You know, if you live in a residential setting where you have to have two staff present in order to take one person out. Then you throw in the pandemic. You know, people couldn't even go to the library. Yeah. It's it's an imprisonment of its own in some kind, you know? Yeah. Are there other professionals? Um, is, like, is there a professional association around um, sex, sexuality, and working with people with disabilities? Well, there isn't anything specific to disabilities that I'm aware of okay. that encompasses any of those things. So, you know, I, I belong to organizations that are specific to offenders. Mm-hmm. I belong to organizations specific to the transgender community. So it's it's taking those areas of expertise or interest and then trying to work with the groups that, that we're working with then, too. Yeah. You know, it's. I recently applied to uh, be on a board uh, for a medical practice here in Pittsburgh who supports the transgender community uh, because, again, we're seeing so many people with autism. I, I think it's six times the amount of the neurotypical population who are identifying as, you know, a, a different gender identity than what we call your cis population. Mm-hmm. So it, this is going to have to really be looked at and worked with sooner rather than later that's good and you're putting in the work (laughs) we appreciate that so much to me it's you know it's personal Mm -hmm. it's it's but it's exciting to see too but that's how so many grassroots organizations have always got off the ground too when it's personal and it means something to you you do something more with it too yeah yes yeah when people have a personal story, they're definitely... That's right. Yeah. I, I think that anyone at any age, at any point in their life, can be taught information. 
Now, does that mean all people have the mental capacity intellectually to make an informed decision? It doesn't always mean yes. But we have due diligence to examine that Mm -hmm. and make our best efforts to try. You know, I remember years ago, I got a, a gentleman who was in his 70s who engaged in problematic sexual behaviors. And I distinctly remember that team saying, can't teach him anything. He's too old and he is who he is. Well, we taught him things and he learned and he used it, you know, and I think he had a pretty good life. So it's it's about giving people the things that they need, but also supporting overall quality of life too. I've even seen people go from, I remember this person who was incarcerated, moved to residential services. He wound up with a girlfriend. They wound up moving in together, right? Yeah. My work was done at that point. Mm-hmm. So I was able to, because he was good. Everything was good. So, you know, you do see things happen. I, I joke, I'll be able to retire when I actually get, in, you know, invited to a wedding that of someone that I've been supporting. I have yet to be invited to a wedding because it hasn't existed yet. Mm-hmm. That's my career goal. Everyone has a basic human need, and sexuality is a basic human need. I mean, Maslow, many, many years ago, yeah. right, talked about the hierarchy of need. Mm-hmm. And sexuality was one of those basic ones. Yep. Because back then, if, if we weren't engaging in sexual, sexual acts, the human race wouldn't exist, mm-hmm. right? It's a little bit different today, but the concept hasn't changed. Everyone has sexual thoughts and sexual feelings, and that is the one thing that's not delayed. So if you have a developmental disability, you could walk on time, you could talk on time, or you're not, right? But the one thing that fires on time are hormones. Yep. And so we either have to prepare for it and start opening up the dialogue and information Or again, we're going to be building the plane as we're flying it. If people want to get in contact with you, if they want to join your group, if they just want to say hi, (laughs) how can they do this? SeanMcGillMSWConsulting.com Thank you so much for listening. A Valid Podcast comes to you from the All Abilities Media Project. And from interviews to music and cover art for this podcast, the majority of us producing this work have one or more disabilities. Others on the team don't identify as having disabilities. Hallie Stockton of the news outlet Public Source edited this podcast, and she did a great job with some of my writing. You can also find full transcripts and great photos of a valid podcast subjects at publicsource.org. Liz Reed of Jewel Tone Productions is our audio engineer and sound designer. Disability advocates Dr. Rachel Callum Whitman and Aaron Gannon consulted on the content of this podcast. Mick Fisher with Creative Citizen Studios made our cover art. George Castleberry shared some of his original harmonica and other music with us. Jane Andersek, accompanist with the Woodlands Foundation, played piano. The All Abilities Media Project is based at the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. CMI Director Dr. Andrew Conti is a co-executive producer of the podcast, along with me, Jennifer Shveta Jordan. I also publish Unabridged Press and manage All Abilities Media. Learn more at allabilitiesmedia.org.